0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in African Studies. I'm Jacob Ivey, one of the hosts of this channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Nancy Mitchell about her new book, Jimmy Carter in Africa, Race and the Cold War, published by Stanford University Press in 2016 as part of the Cold War International History Project series. Nancy Mitchell is a professor of history at North Carolina State University, and her book provides probably one of the most complete pictures of the Carter administration's dealings with the African continent and its legacies for U.S. and international policy across the globe. Nancy Mitchell, welcome.
1: Thanks very much, Jacob. It's really a pleasure to be talking with you. Thank
0: you. you. And and Nancy, we were wondering if you could start a bit and tell us about yourself and and how you came to the field of history.
1: (laughs) That could be a very long answer, but I'll try to be brief. I wasn't really interested in history until I lived abroad in the 1970s for 10 years. I lived in Ireland and Egypt, and it was there that I got really fascinated by trying to understand U.S. foreign policy. And so I came back from living abroad, did my Ph.D. at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And really moved as I was doing that um, from a more political science point of view to a more historical point of view. Yeah, that—that's. That, that,
0: uh, I, I think we talk to a lot of people when we deal with the Cold War. They sort of make that transition uh, from that uh, from, from that process. And yeah, I think your international experience really shines in, in this book itself. And and I, I would have to say for our audience, this is a tome and that is not that is not a negative claim whatsoever but this is a massive book about Carter in Africa. So I just have to ask how did this start? How did this project begin <laughs> looking at Carter in
1: Africa? Oh gosh. Um well certainly that's true. It is a tome. Um, it was initially going to be one chapter and probably a short chapter in an overall book studying Carter's foreign policy. Um, pretty soon after starting the research, I, well, maybe not pretty soon, after about two years, I guess, of doing the research for that book, I realized that, I mean, that would have been like a, a series of tomes. And so I decided to begin with Africa and, and then I thought I'd write other books about Carter in other regions. Um, But I started to begin with Africa because people, I think, often forget, not maybe the listeners to this podcast, but a lot of people forget how important Africa was in the Cold War in the 1970s. Carter told me when I interviewed him that he spent more time and effort on Africa than he did on the Middle East. And I think that the documentary record supports that. Carter personally was very involved in his Africa policy, whereas in the Middle East, you know, the State Department carried a lot of that burden, um, and it did also in Africa. But Carter really paid a lot of attention to Africa. The other reason that I decided to work on Africa was that it hasn't really been thoroughly studied before. And there'd been a lot of attention to Carter in Iran and Carter in the Middle East, some Carter in Panama. Um, but Africa really, uh, didn't seem to be fully plumbed. And the third reason that I settled on Africa was really personal. I had friends, um, who, who were just got me fascinated in the subject. Uh, when I was at SICE, I had Pierre Glahesi as a professor and um he's now a friend and he was the first person who taught me about Carter and Africa and then as i started to do research on the book i started to interview some of the people involved in the africa policy and i just found them fascinating so i i decided to focus just on carter and africa uh, and
0: and i think we 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 are all rewarded because of it on that front so so you say in the book that by 1976, the Cold War was hottest in South Africa. Um, what made this area of the world such an important location for the United States and the Soviet Union in this wider Cold War context?
1: Well, I think the, um, the first and main thing is that Portugal had been very slow to decolonize. And mm-hmm. in 1974, with the Revolution, the Carnation Revolution in Portugal you have the belated decolonization of the African colonies, of the Portuguese-African colonies. And in one way, you can look at the Cold War as a long struggle for hegemony, for influence in the decolonized regions. And so what happens when Portugal decolonizes Mozambique, Angola, and Guinea-Bissau, São Tomé and Príncipe, is that you have the classic Cold War struggle for influence in those regions. And it focuses on Angola, where you have uh, a civil war that erupts in the wake of decolonization, and the intervention of the South Africans who are supported by the United States, and then this massive Cuban intervention, that Piero Glehesi has described so well in his books. And so the Cuban intervention in Angola in 1975, early 1976, was seen in the United States by the Ford administration as a projection of Soviet power. And so it was seen there as, the Cubans were seen incorrectly, in my opinion, as Soviet proxies. And it was really seen in the United States as a frightening expansion of the Soviet ability to project power outside of its borders in a way that it hadn't done before using Soviet, tr- using Cuban troops. So that's really why the Cold War settled in, in the region in the Carter, in the late, in the Ford and Carter periods.
0: And and that leads to my next question. Uh, You you have Henry Kissinger, who who's really a key figure in the background of this story, and in the foreground for a lot of it. But uh, there's a great quote you have by Kissinger, who said, uh, "But this is Africa, and one can never count on anything until it is completed," which is probably the most. Kissinger esque, you know, quote you can come up with <laughs> on that front, um, but I, I think what shines so clearly in this book is that there's a great deal of continuity between uh, Kissinger slash Ford's policy in Africa and the Carter administration. Uh, so, how much did Carter inherit Kissinger's policy when he comes to the presidency in 1977, and in what ways did Carter make it his own?
1: Hmm, Jacob, that's a that's a really that's a fun question. Um, First of all, yeah, let me say, yeah, Kissinger, for a while we were going to put Kissinger in the title, um, because he is a really important player, but then the title got too long and so we, we dropped him out of the title. But, um, he is a really important player and, and a really fascinating, and the story of Kissinger's policy in 1976 in Rhodesia really hadn't been told thoroughly before either. And I just, I found that totally fascinating. There's more continuity between Carter and Ford, or Carter and Kissinger, however you want to say it, uh, than most people acknowledge. I think people mistakenly think of Carter in terms of human rights and a kind of wishy-washy, weak, liberal view of the world, and one of the things that my research uh uncovered for me was that Carter really was a a very conservative cold warrior in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways. And his focus on Rhodesia, Southern Africa in general, but Rhodesia in particular, was motivated in part by exactly the same concerns that Kissinger had, which was (laughs) that the United States was really in a box. If they couldn't end the civil war or the insurgency in Rhodesia, then the guerrillas, the, the patriotic front, might call on the Cubans, who were still, there were about 30,000 still in ang- troops in Angola. And if the patriotic front called on the Cubans for help, fighting against the illegal, racist Ian Smith regime that was in power in Rhodesia. <laughs> the American administration would be totally checkmated because they couldn't support, particularly Carter, couldn't support Ian Smith. Um, that just was a bridge too far. But they also couldn't support Marxist, uh, Soviet-supported guerrillas, insurgents. And so the goal of both the Kissinger and the Carter policy was to try to create peace in Rhodesia before that terrible nightmare scenario from the American point of view might happen. It's also true that Carter, I think, to the extent one can judge anybody's sincerity, was sincerely interested in trying to create a more just situation in Rhodesia a situation of majority rule for moral reasons but that alone would not have explained the intense interest that he showed in it
0: yeah and and i think it's it's fascinating to see how carter comes in and and again sort of makes this his own and yet he's still um as 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 you said before working within this box that uh you know the, the cold war creates in this environment um as, as part of this making it his own um i, I think Uh, a fascinating component as well is is the people that that Carter surrounds himself with, uh, that influences policy. I'm thinking of uh, specifically people like Andrew Young, the UN ambassador, uh, Cyrus Vance, secretary of state, and uh, uh, Byzantie, the uh, national security advisor. What did these individuals bring to the table? And how do you think they influenced Carter in this uh, evolving policy during his presidency?
1: That's another really good question. It's really fun to talk about what a book you've written, you know? So I could go mm-hmm. on and yeah. on. Um, one, of the, one of the things that was most fun in writing this book was to uncover the character of Andrew Young. Andrew Young was Carter's uh, U.N. ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And he came to that job because he had been Martin Luther, one of Martin Luther King's right-hand men uh, during the Civil Rights Movement. When King was assassinated, Young became a member of Congress from Georgia, where Carter, of course, was governor. They didn't know each other well, uh, but Carter felt that Young would be a very good um, exemplar of his emphasis on human rights. Young was extremely, in my interpretation of the evidence, Young was extremely important in keeping Carter focused a A kind of realistic view of what was happening in southern Africa, young, as aide to Martin Luther King, had been accused of being communist of um you know along with all of the civil rights people you know that that kind of loose talk that oh they're all communists. Mm-hmm. He knew how the the charge of communism was used in a Cold War context. And when he talked to the Patriotic Front, Mugabe and Joshua Nkomo and, and all of their aides, he wasn't the he wasn't concerned with the fact that they might be supported by the Soviet Union or Marxist. He really saw the struggle in in more racial terms and more struggle for justice and freedom. And there I think it's Young's influence that helps Carter continue to see. It's not that Carter wouldn't have seen it without Young, but Carter listened to Young. And when there was a lot of pressure on Carter to support, uh, in the, in the sort of in the middle of the, the whole story, to support a centrist solution, when Bishop Abou Mazurewa was elected. Young was able to communicate with Carter and to convince Carter, or to help convince Carter, that, in fact, the real freedom fighters in this struggle were the patriotic front, and to see them as freedom fighters, not as communist pariahs. And so Carter treated the patriotic front as serious uh, members of the negotiation in a way that he didn't treat any other protesters. For example, in Iran or in Nicaragua, he treated the patriotic front differently. And I think there were a number of reasons for that. Race is a very important one. And, um, and Young was the one who was able to kind of keep Carter's feet to the fire on that issue. I think Young was extremely important. As far as Vance and Brzezinski go, Vance was the Secretary of State, Brzezinski was the National Security Advisor. A lot of scholars, even before that, the press in the Carter years kind of defined the Carter presidency as this big struggle between the hawkish Brzezinski and the dovish Vance. I think that that Is a misreading of the Carter presidency. Uh, It's interesting Mm because you know Carter didn't have Twitter, and uh, (laughs) you know for better or worse. Um, And Twitter, (laughs) I think, is really going to change the way historians approach presidencies, assuming that that future presidents uh, continue to use Twitter. One of the things that's interesting when you're studying a president, like I did with Carter, the documents aren't written by Carter. You have Carter's formal speeches, and you have you know a couple of incidental things he might have written afterwards. But the contemporaneous stuff is, is written by people under Carter, and he just writes marginalia on it. And so you really need to work hard to, to figure out where is Carter in this story. If he had Twitter, it would have been a lot easier, I think. Um, but he didn't. And so journalists had that same problem of trying to figure out where's Carter in this. And they, they decided, oh, well, there isn't really Carter. We'll just write Carter out of the story. And we'll just talk about Vance and Brzezinski, who were leaking to the press all the time. But actually, Carter was central to all decisions. And Brzezinski was more hawkish than Vance. But often they switch sides uh it's a mistake to write carter out of
0: the story yeah and i think where your book really shines is that it does provide carter with that agency with the the influence that he uses on that front um i i'd like to return back to this issue of race because you know that carter saw the crisis in Rhodesia through the prism of the civil rights struggle um what did you mean by that? And do you think this viewing Rhodesia through the prism of civil rights struggle? Do you think this ended up being a benefit or a hindrance to Carter's management of the situation?
1: Another good question. Um, look, first of all, let me stipulate that I think it's a very, uh, from a historian's point of view, it is not a good comparison. Uh, there are profound differences. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless. Um, I think it was very useful for Carter to think that way. And I think Young also thought that way and certainly encouraged Carter to think that way. Carter grew up in what Young considered to be um, the most racist region of Georgia. Southern Georgia, um, Plains Georgia, just just um, about two hours south of Atlanta. And Carter grew up um, in a very segregated society, he had his friends because he was. He, there were only two white families in the little sort of hamlet that he grew up in. His friends were all African American boys, little boys. Um, but he, they went to separate schools. They had to sit in different places in the movie theater. Um, he he grew up in Jim Crow and didn't question it, and he was not active. In the civil rights movement, his mother uh, was progressive on racial issues. She was a nurse and treated African Americans uh, with respect. Um, His father was very much a a, a typical um, southerner um, in that region at that time. Carter sat out the civil rights movement, saw it from afar, he was in the Navy for a lot of it. Um, And he really had, when he went back to Plains, I think he had a profound sense of of how changed for the good Southern society was by the civil rights movement, how whites and blacks were better, how the South was better. How it was just better for everybody. And by seeing the struggle in Rhodesia in terms that he would translate into sort of parallels to the US South, seeing Ian Smith, you know, as as a white racist in the South, and and seeing uh, the Patriotic Front like the Civil Rights Marching. That enabled him to get out of the incredibly kind of strong magnetic field of the Manichean Cold War. I think my study of the Cold War is that the elite really needs some strong way to get out of the seeing things in Cold War terms, and seeing things in, the, in terms of race was that way for Carter. He was able to, to, to momentarily, at least in Southern Africa, move away from the Cold War. So I think um, from U.S. policy's point of view, it was extremely useful, although inaccurate, um, extremely useful to see it. It made it so that Carter could identify with the struggle. Um, he could identify with something that he really had very little knowledge of before he became president. So I think it was really very helpful.
0: And and, and I and I think that that comes out quite a bit in the book. Um, there's the opposite end of that spectrum, however, and and you touched on it earlier, where there's a problem with that direct comparison. And I think, One of the more fascinating incidences that occur uh, is, again, Andrew Young um, at the uh, 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 Maputo Conference in 1977, uh, when he gives sort of this almost civil rights-style sermon to all of these African leaders. And it seems to be this culmination of human rights and civil rights and all of these ideas, and yet it also seems to fall incredibly flat. Uh, For example... You have Robert Mugabe, who says, you know, this isn't going to work. We've tried nonviolent resistance. Uh, we, we need to use a different format to throw off this colonial regime. So m- my question for you then is, how do African leaders see this interpretation of the situation that Carter and his advisors have? And how does this sort of influence their interaction with the United States during this period?
1: Hmm. <coughs> I love that 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 conference in Maputo. is just fascinating, um, and Young really gets chastened by it, uh, but it doesn't stop him. Um, African leaders, as far as I can generalize, uh, were very critical of the um, of the comparison. They, uh, p- particularly in Mozambique, um, but they they tended to see the struggle. Not in racial terms, uh but in terms of independence and 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 basic rights, Kaunda in Zambia was much more kind of uh accepting of whatever it took for carter to to get to the right side um, but for uh Michelle in mozambique for the, um, ANC and, and other black radicals in South Africa, um, it was an offensive comparison. Um, it, it, just didn't work for them. Also for the British, um, the British were extremely condescending, um, toward Carter, seeing it, you know, the British knew a lot more about Africa than, than the Carter administration did. And they were very very critical of the comparison, but i don't i, yeah, and, 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 I but to get back, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt um mm-hmm. I no, don't think you know I'm thinking now i I actually don't think that that criticism of Carter's use of that analogy affected African attitudes toward the Carter policy. Um, Michelle meets Carter at the UN and really gives him hell. Um, <laughs> it's really quite an interesting encounter. Um, he really, mm-hmm. uh, just criticizes everything about past US policy. And Carter takes it. And Michelle afterwards says, you know, he likes Carter. Um, I think you know I think they just dismiss the the use of that analogy. I I don't think it's central to their viewpoint on Carter. I can't think of any place where it really affected uh their policy or their attitude toward the United States.
0: All right, excellent. Excellent. So I, I would be remiss because we spent so much time talking about the the, the area around Rhodesia. I, I'd like to pivot a little bit um, towards one of the other major focuses of the book, and that is around the Horn of Africa. Um, I, I think this area is frankly even less well known in relationship to the Carter administration as a whole. Um, And and I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how the situation in the Horn of Africa, specifically the conflict between Ethiopia and Somalia, um, really was so much different than the situation in Rhodesia for the Carter administration. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's it's just a fascinating comparison. Um, You know, they're both in the continent of Africa, but other than that, there's almost no similarity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's really an interesting counterpoint. The situation in Rhodesia, the Carter administration was very well prepared for. They expected it. They developed a policy. They made it a high priority from the beginning. Um, they had their top people on it from the beginning. For reasons that I never could figure out, they seem to have been almost blindsided by the situation in the Horn of Africa. There's, there's no reason why they should have been blindsided. Um, it was clear that there had been a revolution in Ethiopia. It was clear that Ethiopia was leaning away from the United States and towards the Soviet Union. Uh, it was clear that that was going to affect Ethiopian relations with Somalia. All of this should have been clear to the Carter administration. But it wasn't. Uh, They didn't plan ahead for um, the crisis in the Horn. And one of the things that I think is interesting uh, sort of takeaway about the Carter administration is that when they had time to prepare, for example, in Rhodesia, in Panama, um, in the Middle East, they were actually very effective in China, um, but when they were blindsided, like in Iran and in the Horn of Africa and in Nicaragua, um, they were all so busy doing, the foreign policy principles were all so busy doing what they had planned to do, their plates were already full, and they, they really had trouble uh, getting the key people focused on these crises that erupted fast enough. So in the Horn of Africa, they were late realizing what was happening. And Carter uh, really had a very confused policy toward the Horn of Africa. He had a very consistent policy in Rhodesia and a a very confused policy in the Horn of Africa. A much more classically Cold War policy. Not quite full Cold War because uh, I think a, a, a more hawkish president, a president who was more convinced um, by by the Cold War viewpoint and more willing to use military force, would probably have backed Somalia in the war in the Horn. Carter resisted doing that, but he winked at allies uh, supplying Somalia, which clearly was engaged in a war of aggression to try to get... Uh, the southern province, the Ogaden, to try to annex that away from Ethiopia. So it was a real mess of a policy um, that Carter pursued in the Horn. A really fascinating uh, conjunction. It's African, but also Middle Eastern. Saudi Arabia was particularly interested, because it's almost a neighbor, um, about what was happening in the Horn, and particularly interested in Soviet penetration of that region. Anwar Sadat was extremely interested in what was happening in the Horn. So you have a different cast of characters. Some are the same, you know, Tanzania, um, Kenya, Uh, but you have a different cast of characters and um, a different attitude in the Carter administration uh, in the Horn than you do in in, um, Rhodesia.
0: Do you think that The lack of preparation and the like was because of a lack of continuity from, say, Kissinger. Um, You said that the Carter administration wasn't doing well in these sort of these crisis moments. Um, I I think, though, it seems, or at least the way you describe it, is even the Soviet Union is also caught a little bit off guard. Cuba is caught a little bit off guard by the situation as a whole. Uh, Do you think, then, it's just not just the United States, but it's the entire international community that doesn't really know how to fully respond to this
1: situation? I think that the crisis in the horn, with hindsight, I would never have been smart enough to have seen it at the time. But I think that it's one of the cracks in the Cold War. Um, not that the Cold War inevitably would have ended 10 years later, but that that there were crises that were happening. The Horn and Iran, a little bit after the Horn, are the two prominent ones in the Carter administration. There were crises that were happening that wrong-footed uh the Cold War players where it was really difficult to to fully understand it in Cold War terms. I mean, one of the sort of interesting things in the war in the Ogaden, the war in the Horn of Africa, is that you had Ethiopians who were backed by the Soviet Union fighting against Somalis, who were backed by Saudi Arabia and by America's friends, if not directly by the United States. The Somalis were fighting, with Soviet weapons that had been supplied by the Soviet Union before they switched sides. The Ethiopians were fighting with American weapons. And it just shows how complicated, how, how, how really almost breaking down the Cold War norms were um, by the mid-70s. And I think um, the United States, the Soviet Union, this was a complicated, a really complicated crisis. And they all had trouble kind of, uh, getting their footing in it. That said, though, it's, it's inexplicable to me. I don't understand why the Carter administration wasn't better prepared. Um, the U.S. Congress in the transition period in, when Carter was, was a uh, president-elect had two hearings on the horn and on the crisis in the horn. Uh, the State Department wrote up Position papers. The Ford State Department wrote up position papers for Carter's um, State Department about the Horn. Um, I, I think it just was overloaded with with different crises and, and information, and somehow or other, it just they didn't put the attention on it that they needed to. Now, you could argue if they had put the attention on it, what would their policy have been? And it's still not clear, you know. Yeah. Um, It was a really, it was really difficult for the United States to figure out what was the right side to be on. And even though I would say Carter had a really confused policy, and in some ways, um, an amoral policy, not quite amoral because they didn't absolutely back Somalia, but shading that direction. Actually, the United States ended up the winner, um, in the horn. They ended up getting a very useful base in Berbera. Uh, The Soviet Union gets saddled with Mengistu in Ethiopia, who is not a a useful ally, uh, very extensive. So, you know, so I think the United States ends up the winner in that, in any case.
0: So so with that in mind, uh, I'm I'm glad you bring up sort of the long-term impact, because uh, one of, I think, the more interesting components of this book is your examination of lancaster house uh you know that this negotiation actually paves the way for zimbabwean independence and if you open any book uh, basic history of africa basic history of the region and look up what is going on in lancaster house it's usually the british who are the primary movers and shakers in this force and the americans just sort of disappear into the background um so i'm wondering you, you rightly challenge this idea. I'm wondering, why do you think Carter's received so little credit for the United States' role in, in the eventual independence of Zimbabwe?
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly the British deserve um, a lot of credit. But the Americans and and the the British before Thatcher come in, the, the whole David Owen um, uh, foreign office deserves a lot of credit. Um, Why does Carter not get credit? Well, look, um, Carter doesn't get much credit for anything. Um, (laughs) And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, One, I mean, one is that Carter just doesn't, he he doesn't, he didn't do any of the post-presidency stuff, bragging about what he had done or, or sort of spinning what he had done or creating a myth of what he had done. He just, you know, Reagan comes in and then four years later Mondale runs, um, Carter's vice president Mondale. And Mm -hmm. so you have, oh, you know, about a five year period when the Reagan team, who are really good at spinning narratives, um, just make Carter out to be a complete loser, a wimp and a loser. And Carter doesn't fight back, and by the time Carter leaves the presidency, he's alienated a lot of the interest groups that might have come to his defense. Um, he he didn't inspire that kind of superhuman loyalty that, say, Kennedy inspired, where Kennedy had all of those people. Now, granted, you know that was partly the the, the martyrdom of Kennedy, but but he had all those people who who burnished his his reputation after he left. Carter didn't have that. Also, I think that uh, two th- two things. Um, one is that to the extent that that Carter's reputation is still very affected by people who lived through it, the feeling that Carter left the last the feeling of his last year was was a feeling of, of weakness and impotence because of the hostage crisis and the economy and people remember that they don't remember what he did or what he didn't do but they remember feeling that and so it fits the narrative to not give him credit for anything in foreign policy secondly i think that the idea that reagan saved the country from You know, a disaster is a very strong narrative that's believed, uh, not just by Republicans, you know, but by a lot of Democrats too. And I think that's a very, that's been a very difficult narrative to, to dislodge. So I think there are a lot of reasons that Carter didn't get credit. In, in Zimbabwe in particular, it gets difficult to want to get credit because of the way that Mugabe ended up. Um, and so Carter didn't really want, once it became clear that, that Mugabe was not going to be the leader that everybody at the time had hoped he would be, um, and expected him to be, uh, it, Carter doesn't want to take claim credit for it.
0: Yeah, no, no. And I, I think you make that really clear. And it's, again, it's difficult to have hindsight in these situations as a whole. Um you conclude your book by saying and you've struck on this before that the most striking feature of the perception of american weakness at the end of the carter years is how wrong it was um and i think as you've just said i think you give a a a rather you know well-rounded summary of carter's legacy on foreign policy but I would ask, what do you think Carter's long-term impact has been for U.S. relations on the African continent? Um, and do we still feel some resonance of this period, even within policy
1: today? Well, <laughs> policy today is a little tricky. <laughs> but um. Uh, yeah, yeah. um I don't know uh you know I don't know it's hard to know in the trump presidency because it seems like so much has there's been such a discontinuous a kind of discontinuity with the past um with trump. It's very hard to know after Trump what bits of the past are going to be resurrected um or not until trump I would say that that carter carter isn't the the reason that, that human rights became prominent, obviously that, that begins in Europe and the U.S. Congress takes it up before Carter is elected. But Carter, as president, institutionalizes the um, importance of human rights in U.S. foreign policy uh, in a way that made it even difficult for Reagan um, to completely uh, neglect. It, it can be overstated. You know, and clearly Carter's human rights policy was not consistent um but I think that is something in Africa um probably you'd have to go on a on a country by country basis um Carter probably had very little impact in a lot of African countries, but in some, I think he he has i don't know how lasting or not, but he had some impact in nigeria carter was was popular um I don't know in the younger generation whether they're really even aware of, of what he, you know, of the way that he treated Nigeria with respect. Um, but I think certainly for a while anyway, uh, he, the fact that not just Carter, but Carter's State Department, the ambassadors and the embassies and Young, and it's, it's striking from an American point of view that this is an administration that, that does try to rise above um, the kind of paternalistic view that a lot of previous administrations have had toward Africa. But I don't know how long-lasting that is.
0: Yeah. And, and that's always a difficult thing to measure is the, the, the nature of legacy and, and how long it lasts. I I would love to ask you because so often when we are dealing with our topics and we're dealing with the archives and, and we're dealing with, you know, massive series of correspondence, um, more from a, a methodological perspective, so rarely do we have the chance to sit down and talk with the quote-unquote great men of history um, in these instances. Um, I would just ask you, what was it like having the opportunity to interview some of these key figures who in many instances sort of shaped the later part of the 20th century?
1: It was just wonderful. Um, It just, you know, my my last book was on the the turn of the century, 1890s, 1900. I didn't interview any of those people. Um, So it was really a treat to to be able to interview people. And it was really an education for me. Um, You know, interviewing Carter, um, he was obviously very gracious, um, incredibly clear and accurate in his memory. I transcribed the interview and it was in complete sentences. You know, he had, it was really a remarkable, um, a remarkable interview, uh, and, and very useful, um, to the work. Interviewing Kaunda of Zambia, um, I did that with, uh, Mark Chona, his right-hand man. That was just wonderful. Um, he, you know, he, he sang, um, it it was really interesting to see somebody so important in African history, how careful he was. I kept wanting to get him to criticize Kissinger and Kissinger's policy. And, I mean, there was no way he was going to be critical of anything. Uh, he was very gracious and and generous in his comments. Very good memory. Um, his relationship with Chona was fascinating to see. Um, that was just a whole lot of fun. David Owen, who was the, um, British Foreign Secretary for, for the bulk of the period of the book, um, was just, uh, that was a great interview. I ran out of tape in that interview. I mean, I had no idea it would run so long. Um, it was just, he was fascinating. And, um, he helped me. It's interesting. When you interview people, it helps you to go back to the documents and reread them and see things that you completely forgot, or that you didn't, that, not that you forgot, but that you didn't see the first or the second or the third time you read the documents. There was a whole series of quadripartite talks, um, which were secret uh, between the, the United States and, and European countries that were interested in the war in the horn. But in the American archives, they were still c- classified. But Owen told me about them. And then I went back and I tried to kind of dig up using FOIA and reading between the lines. I tried to reconstruct those quadripartite talks. And I would never have done that um, if it hadn't been for that interview. Um, So, no, he was fascinating, too. It was really one of the joys of writing the book was doing all the interviews. Yes, and it
0: really shows in the content overall. Because uh, again, just the the variety and and the detail of sources that we have in the book, I, I think makes it an an incredibly useful tool for anyone studying or or learning or, or building upon the research associated with this period in the Cold War history as a whole. Um. Well, Nancy, we've taken up a great deal of your time, but before we go, I, I would be I I would be, I think, denying our audience if I I didn't ask you uh, a little bit about what you're working on now and and what we could look forward to seeing from you in the future.
1: (laughs) Well, it it took me a long time to write this book, so it might be a long wait. But um, I am interested in this thing that I alluded to in one of my other answers, which is trying to get a better grip on what was happening in the 70s in terms of U.S. foreign policy. You know, the the 1970s are usually, you know, when you're teaching your survey class, you say, oh, this is the era of detente, and you talk about detente, and you move on to Reagan. I don't think detente describes the era accurately, and I think it's more interesting to look at the era as two things, as, as an era of cracks in the Cold War, Um, And I mentioned those two, the Horn and and Iran. But you can also go back to the 73 war. And the 73 war is also the rise of the power of the two big oil-producing states, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I think you can also see the 70s as the beginning, not uh, just of the Cold War. The Cold War is definitely still going on. But a new war is beginning. Which is or a new balance of power is beginning, which is the superpower is adjusting to the new power of Iran and Saudi Arabia, so I want to go back and look in a more broad way at the nineteen seventies and try to get a better grip on how we can understand what was happening in that decade
0: oh that that does sound like a a widely encompassed topic and and, and hopefully it is as is in as much detail as as this book, but uh, (laughs) it it comes out sooner rather than later on that front. That's Uh, what I hope. Well, well, thank you very much again, Nancy. We we all look forward to reading that, And, and thank you very much for joining us in this conversation.
1: It was really a pleasure. Your questions were great, and I really enjoyed talking with you.
0: Fantastic. You take care.
1: Take care.